In today's program, you'll hear why a creature that lives in rain puddles has fascinated our top biologists. It's microscopically tiny. It can survive in water for millions of years and by now really ought to be extinct. Our guest scientist tells us why it isn't and how it manages. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. In this section called Scientists at Work, we talk to people who, for some reason or another, find themselves working, researching or thinking about science in Cambridge, England. And we're going to get right on with our recurring curiosity about the research that happens just metres away from where we shop in town. I visited Cambridge University to learn about some obscure creatures called... um, Chris, you're the biology person here. (laughs) They're called deloid rotifers. And they're really neat microscopic animals, about less than a millimetre long, think the size of a pinhead, and they hang about in fresh water. Okay, well, thanks for that. I spoke with Professor Alan Tunnicliffe at the Department of Chemical Engineering to find out more about these little things. Alan, what happens here? It's a really broad church. I mean, all sorts of research goes on here and teaching goes on here. So it's basically set up as a chemical engineering department. But uh, nowadays, chemical engineering has morphed into all sorts of other things and, uh, you know, even encompassed biology shock horror. So besides the sort of traditional chemical engineering, there's quite a bit of biology goes on here. Okay, now what brought me here, there's this strange, this strange, strange creatures. What are they? What's it all about? Can you tell me? I can't even read them off the page. Well, they've got this funny name, they're called a deloid rotifer. Mm-hmm. And it's difficult to, to say when you see the word because it, the word deloid actually begins with a B. <laughs> so it's BD and so on. And that describes something about the creature. And these are tiny little invertebrates, we say. Invertebrate means they don't have a backbone. But they're tiny little creatures that you would need a microscope to see clearly. And they're quite harmless creatures. They, they, they don't cause any disease or anything nasty. You find them all over the world. Typically they live in little puddles and things like that. The point about these creatures is that they have several remarkable properties, one of which is they can survive desiccation, so drying out. Uh-huh. So, you know, if you or I were to start drying out, we wouldn't last very long before no, no, we die. Yeah. Uh, you know, you need water, and we're constantly you know, being told to, to drink enough water and so on. But these creatures have a special advantage over others in that they can completely dry out. I mean, essentially lose all of their water. And in that state, they, they become in some kind of suspended animation. So right. they, they're not alive in that state. They're sort of halfway between live and dead. They're just sitting there, doing nothing in the dry state. But if it rains or some water comes back into their environment, then they rehydrate, you know, just add water, and they come back to life. Okay. So you find these creatures in places where that is, a, is an advantage. So, for example, in my back garden, we've got a bird bath. Right, so you know, particularly this time of year, it fills with water. Mm. But in the summer, that, that environment dries out for long periods of time. But these creatures, these deloid rotifers, can live in an environment like that. They're happy when it's full of water, they go about their business, feeding, reproducing. But when it's dry, they just sit there. And of course, other organisms that might be sharing that environment with them can't survive that. They die. So it gives the, the deloid rotifer an advantage in that it can withstand that period of dryness and then come back to life and continue its business when it rains again. The major species that we work on at the moment was actually from an Australian billabong, which is, you know, again, a temporary pond in, in, in the outback in, in Australia. 
But instead of going to your bird bath in the garden, you decided to go to Australia. Well, yeah, we do actually work on, or we have worked on uh, a species that we got from my bird bath as well. Oh. Uh, it's just we just ended up working on this particular Australian species okay. for various reasons. The desiccation property of this particular thing isn't the main interest, is it? Well, actually, it was the main interest when we started. Okay. Um, we, we, so my lab has been working on this phenomenon of, of how certain creatures can survive desiccation for many years. So that's how we got into studying oh, this particular animal. But it turns out that it has a number of other interesting characteristics as well. So, for example, it's, it's asexual. So it reproduces without sex. They're only girls, only females, right, oh my with goodness. this animal. So, you know, they're only females that only have daughters. No males have been found. And that's, okay, it's, it's a bit unusual. You do find other asexual creatures in the, in the natural world, but in evolutionary terms, it tends to be a dead end. So after a few million years, an asexual creature usually becomes extinct. And that's because you know, sex has certain advantages in that it allows good, good mutations to accumulate in a population and bad ones to be removed. So you can't do that if you're asexual. So you end up accumulating lots of bad mutations that you can't get rid of. So eventually you just die from this kind of mutation load. So you know, it's intriguing that these creatures that we're talking about, these delid rotifers, have been able to survive without sex for so long. And we're talking about something a week. Like eight, eight, well, no, no, in, in evolution terms, for 80 million years. Ah, oh, that's right? longer than a week. That's longer than a week. So in these, these species of the delid rotifers, there have been no males for tens of millions of years. So males are redundant, Roger, so, <laughs> you know, they don't need us. So there are lots of suggestions about how they might do that. And uh, one of the things that we picked up on recently, and, and is why we're talking, yes. is that what, one, one thing these creatures can do is they can take DNA in from other organisms. Whoa. Okay, so when we look at the, the genes or the genes which are working in these animals, we find that about 10% of those seem to have come from other types of organism, like mostly from bacteria, actually, but also from fungi and other types of organisms, like even plants, for example. We see a few plant genes in there. So they, they seem to be kind of sucking out DNA from their environment, and somehow they can incorporate that into their own chromosomes and make them work for them themselves. So you can take a bacterial gene, and, and then you can they modify it slightly, and now it works in the rotifer. Whoa. I mean, what's interesting me at the moment is just thinking how I could have some useful genes that you've got and would be happy yeah. to have. <laughs> well, that would be nice, wouldn't it? There are ways that, that you know, we can think of doing this in humans if, if, if that's what you want to think about. I mean, we, you know, gene therapy is, is, is precisely that. You know, you take a gene. So, say you take cystic fibrosis, for example, and we know that, that, that people that suffer from that have got a... Uh, a, a bad gene, basically, for, for that particular protein that, that, that um, causes a disease when it's mutated. So people have been looking for a number of years at trying to introduce a good copy of that gene into those individuals, into the patients. And, you know, progress has been made along those lines. So that's, that's a kind of gene therapy angle. But these animals are doing this on a much larger scale, you know, with literally hundreds of genes over evolutionary periods of time. But yes, have somehow managed to incorporate those genes into their own set of genes. Okay. Is that called ho- horizontal? Horizontal gene transfer. I mean, it's horizontal because usually genes are transmitted in a vertical sense from, you know, parents to children and, and so on. That's, that's called vertical transmission um, in the normal way. So you're coming down through the, the lineage of, of, you know, parents, children, they become parents, they have children and so on. That's vertical transmission. But 
this is horizontal transmission, so it doesn't it ignores all of that. So the genes come in from anywhere and just get stuck into the into the chromosome somehow. How on earth does do you find out what's in the gene of the limbert like this? Okay, so how do you look at the genes? You can do this on several levels, and we were interested in knowing about those genes which are actually active, functioning. Okay, so when a gene is active, what it does is that the DNA, you have DNA, which is the gene itself, and then the cells um, make copies of that yeah. DNA into a similar type of molecule called RNA. RNA. Gotcha. And uh, so if you look at all the RNA molecules, you're looking basically at the active genes. Of course. Right? So we take those RNA molecules and then we can sequence them. In other words, we can find out what the, the different string of letters which, which comprises any particular RNA molecule is. And if you know that, then you know something about the proteins that will be made using those instructions from those RNA molecules. So the RNA is, is, is like an intermediate to carry the information from the DNA to the machinery which makes proteins in cells. It's, like, it's called a messenger RNA because it's taking a message, the message which is in the DNA, is encoded in the DNA, which can give rise to protein sequences, proteins, to build proteins, but you need an intermediate molecule, this messenger RNA, to give you those proteins. So, so we looked at all the sequences of these RNA molecules, and from that you can deduce what proteins they make, and once you know that, you can look at those sequences of proteins and say, what does this look like that we already know about? So you compare with all the known sequences of proteins which are out there in big computers and say, okay, how similar is this one to all the other ones we know about? And you find a match. So you can find the nearest sequence to the one that you've identified in your particular animal, the Della Rotifer, and say, okay, this looks like this from, say, a bacterium or from, say, a horse or you know, whatever it is. And so you can say, this is probably, therefore, this type of sequence. In other words, it could be a protein which is a type of enzyme, so it does a particular bit of chemistry in the cell, and you can say, this is that type of enzyme, this type of protein is found in the rotifer. Now, you said that through this kind of horizontal transfer process that the rotifer picks up genes from all over the place. Give me some, for instances, of the sorts of genes that this invert was picking up. It turns out that most of these genes code for enzymes, Okay. All right. So about eighty percent of them actually code for enzymes. So what's happening is that the bi- is that the biochemistry of the DELA is being changed by this process because it's taking in these genes from other organisms, encoding enzymes which give you new chemistry, new biochemistry inside the animal. And then when you look at what kind of biochemistry that is, it, it's it's of various types, which probably helps the animal to you know withstand stresses in its environment more. So we talked about. You know, asexuality. We talked about desiccation. Uh, these animals are desiccation tolerant as well. How do they do that? How can they cope with the problems that those two things um, give rise to? Well, one possibility is that by taking in genes from other organisms, some of those genes will solve the problems that it faces. This this sort of gene acquisition strikes me as a random process. What do you think? Yeah, it must be random. I mean, that's how evolution works, right? Doesn't you it? get changes in the genome, in the genes which can be due to mutation in, in, in most organisms, or in these funny organisms, they're pulling in genes from other, other places, but it's essentially a type of mutation in a way. And, and these things happen randomly, and then you know, there's selection posed by the environment. In other words, the, the different conditions that the animal experiences will, um, will challenge it. And if it has a tool, 
which one of these genes provides which helps it survive a little bit better, then it's more likely to survive, more likely to have offspring and so on. Does it still have the same chromosome set as it started with? I mean, has it now got 46.5 chromosomes? Or is its DNA just got bigger? Yes, you might expect that to happen. And it's difficult to to answer that. I mean, for a start, they only have 12 chromosomes, not 46 like humans and and different animals have different numbers of chromosomes and they can be different lengths and and so on. And, you know, one way we might discover what's, you know, if that's going on or the chromosomes getting bigger is to look at related species and ask, okay, if you take a similar animal which doesn't have this strange property of sucking up DNA from everywhere, you know, what do the chromosomes look like there? And, and, and then we can test your, your idea. Um, unfortunately, we haven't got enough information to do that yet because we don't have the full um, genetic information from the animal we're talking about and, and the nearest relative, but that will come soon. Okay. So where is this going? What, and what do you want to find out next? And well, possibly, we, we, what benefit might it be? Well, a number of things we want to do. We want to actually look at some of the biochemistry in these animals and say, you know, we think from the genes that they should have some extraordinary biochemistry. Well, let's actually look and see if that's happening. We haven't done that yet. We, we need to do that to prove that this is actually a benefit to the animal. The, uh, the sort of implications of what we're doing for evolution generally are that, um, you know, it's not just these Delodrotifers which have genes coming in from other places but it's probably something which occurs more widely in evolution, you know, even in species like human beings. So um, it means that uh, we have to think again about um, you know, how our genes and genomes change during, during evolution. It's not just a purely vertical process of accumulating mutations and so on in that way and changes in that way, um, but occasionally you can get things jumping in from elsewhere, from outside, which could be, you know, generate completely unexpected changes. Okay. Well, this is, I can see this is an area which is rich with sort of ramifications all over the place. But can you sort of pick on long term that this knowledge will possibly lead to? So we're interested in how animals work and how they evolve and this kind of thing. So that's that's giving us a sort of broader understanding of of how, how we as creatures work, which has an impact on how human beings work. As we just said, if you know if there are implications for this kind of horizontal transfer in humans, then that that says something interesting about how how we have got here, what we are like as as a species, how we've evolved. It also tells us that actually uh, it, the genomes, the genes, are a little bit more fluid than we expected, perhaps. And so you know we can imagine that if we should want to, we could actually modify our own genome at some point in the future. We talked about gene therapy, which is a kind of genetic modification in a way, you know, yeah. and it has a benefit of curing patients that have these long-term, really debilitating diseases. And you know, do you want to go further than that? I don't know. People are talking in a sort of science fiction sense about modifying our genomes and making superhumans. Well, maybe you could. It, it, I mean, this kind of work suggests that. That, that isn't impossible, that the, the genome is, is going to tolerate that thing or could tolerate that kind of thing by you know, adding extra genes or changing the genes we have. So I'm not sure we'll ever go down that route, but it, it suggests it might be possible. Okay. Well, it's, 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 there's, you know, there's always hope to uh, you know, improve on my double-digit IQ. <laughs> Thank you very much, Alan. Okay, that was uh, Professor Alan Tunnicliffe of Cambridge University. And thank you, Alan. We'll post some links to interesting articles with our podcast on our podcast page. Hey, Chris, did you notice that little 
detail where the these little creatures that we're talking about actually managed to acquire horse DNA. I did. It was really neat. Uh, apparently, it's very common. Apparently, now the beef burger is able to acquire horse DNA. But in Bumji. Anyway, back to the story, really. Well, I mean, there's a special word I think biologists use to explain the fact that uh, a creature reproduces asexually, isn't there? Oh, yes. These guys are parthenogenic. And I was actually just thinking how awesome it would be for women to skip all the troubles of dating if we were just parthenogenic. Are you just trying to skip dating or mating? I mean, where's the fun now? Surely it's just (laughs) the child-rearing that's um, the bit of the challenge there. True, but I still think I would be mightily tempted to give up mating if I was able to have the ability of these rotifers to find interesting new genes and incorporate them into my DNA. I mean, no wonder that these guys are still around after millions of years without sexual reproduction. But I have to say that although these little animals are pretty neat, I think plants win for biggest genomes. So are you trying to prejudice people against animals in favour of plants or something? Maybe. You might be able to call me a plantist. (laughs) Well, we agree that plants are all pretty jolly. That's pretty much all for today's show. Scientists at Work is made by the Science Show team on Community Radio Cambridge 105. You can also find past episodes on the website www.cambridge105.fm You can also subscribe to future podcasts with the iTunes store. You can get in touch with us on the email science at cambridge105.fm or on Twitter at 105science. Till next time, it's bye from the Science Show team of Roger Frost and Chris Crease. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. <laughs>